Okay. Malachi. I got Malachi on my mind. Um, this is a very fascinating book. I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going to read a little bit, the first five verses, and then I'm going to give more of an of a introduction here. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we can um, come and gather and worship you through um, just the giving of our lives, giving of our time, uh, being here in community, worshiping you through song, through giving, and now through the teaching of your word. Father, we pray that as we study this uh, last and final little prophetical book from the Old Testament, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, help us to um, get the heart of this message, Lord, that uh, you would do a work in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would passionately worship you with all of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for this book of Malachi. We ask for your help now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, Malachi is just, I, I want to step back and sort of uh, attempt to give a, a, a picture of the setting, how, how this book came to be, what's its message, how does it fit in the, the greater scheme of things. Um, in many ways, I'm preaching Malachi as an introduction to Matthew. Um, Malachi is the last of the Old Testament, not only in how it was, was placed in the Bible, but it also chronolo- chronologically is the last of the prophets to speak in the Old Testament. The Bible is not laid out in chronological order. Um, it just happens that Malachi is indeed in its chronological place. It fits that as we turn the pages into Matthew, um, that's the next time God would speak, um, would continue to, to add to revelation through the scriptures. And so um, I have a couple slides here that you may or may not be able to see. If we can go to Justin, if we could go to the next slide here. Um, this is sort of an, an overview of, 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 of Israel, sort of in a timeline. Um, if we come to the left side, we go back to the creation of the world. Um, I'm going to kind of fly through. Um, let's see, where do we want to go? Right here is a significant point. Um, this is after the desert w- uh, wanderings. They're, they enter into the land. They, they conquer the land. Uh, the conquest is completed at this time. The judges begin to, ra- to rule Israel during this time. And then we see up here that Israel's monarchy begins. And during this bump right here is during the time uh, that the kings began to rule within Israel. Um, we see that Israel's monarchy begins. We see that right here, this lower bump, what happens is Saul came in as king, followed by David. David had a son, Solomon. Following Solomon's death, the whole kingdom sort of fell apart. I believe it was Rehoboam. Did I get that right? Okay, I I barely can get your guys' names right. I'm horrible with names. Uh, Rehoboam, the whole kingdom sort of disintegrated. Um, It turned, they they divided north and south. Um, There were uh, the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes, and we see the division of the kingdom from this period. In 722 B.C., The northern kingdom fell. I'm going to go to the next slide to sort of give you a picture of what happened here. Uh, This is a picture of Israel. 
uh, modern-day Israel. Um, on the bold here, uh, the north part, if this is Bethel, Jericho, uh, where's the Dead Sea right here? So by the K pretty much is where Jerusalem is. Um, so basically, you draw a line between these two sections. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C. was basically taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So all of these people were conquered and then hauled away up to this area up over here by the Assyrians. Um, 150 years, mas um, later, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom finally fell uh, t- to Babylon. Babylon came down, they conquered um, Israel, and hauled their people away. We get stories of like Daniel in the lion's den. And, and, and at that point, 722, 586 BC, Israel ceased as a nation. They no longer were in the land um, until 1948 when Israel was basically uh, recreated as a nation again. But, but all through sort of history, they were scattered. They were all over the place. If we can go to the next slide, I'm going to zoom in to basically Jerusalem. So I have the area kind of blurry on the outside. There's a little green line that you can't see here. This is Judea. Uh, you have Jerusalem, uh, Bethel, um, this, the Dead Sea right here. So it's a very small area. And what this area represents is sort of um, the, the, where the Israelites were during the time of Malachi. Um, down at the bottom here, what we see is, um, okay, so when you start talking Old Testament, B.C., the dates sort of go backwards in my mind. So as they get smaller, you're getting towards modern history. Um, so 722, the northern kingdom falls. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls. In 538 B.C., Cyrus authorized the children of Israel to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding their temple. So a small amount go to, um, to rebuild the temple. In 516 B.C., Zerubbabel finished the temple. The, temp- the temple was finally uh, completed. In 445 B.C., Nehemiah builds the walls around the temple. Uh, the book of Malachi sort of fits within uh, the contemporary would be Malachi. It would be during this window. Um, this says five, 433 B.C. Malachi pins the letter. It probably should be, be, should be worded that, that Malachi sort of enters the scene, that he, he comes. There's a lot of, uh, anytime we start talking about ancient literature, uh, there's, there's, there's variants of when it was written. Um, most believe that Malachi was actually written and delivered probably in 397 BC or thereabouts, give or give or take a few years. I'm not going to sit here and argue over 50 years on a, on a book that's, um, you know, a few thousand years old. And to me, it's, it's kind of awesome that you can, we can have this literature documenting historically and we're like arguing over like a really small window. And so we can go back to the very first slide. And um, so Israel's decimated as a nation. They go back. They build the temple again. They build the walls again. The sacrificial, sacrificial system had been sort of initiated again after they have the temple going. Israel as a people are still very scattered. They have no real land. Um, and Malachi comes on scene. What we'll see in this book, uh, Malachi is one. I've been blown away in studying this book. I'm pretty much, I think, today and prepared to preach the whole book, but we're going to slow down and do it over three weeks. And and it could be done in six to seven weeks. We could we could really go slow. But my heart is to sort of fly over, give the big give the big picture. And so that really we can see um, how Christ fits into this this book. Um, Malachi, up to this point, in my almost 20 years of being a Christian, the only time I ever hear anything about Malachi is when a pastor is trying to, to bend your arm for giving. Like seriously, it's Malachi 3.10. Test the Lord with your giving. 
And so I'm like, I wonder if that's really what it's about. Kind of. I, and then the other thing is, is the great prophetical event of John the Baptist of like the coming of the Lord. And so while giving is important, it's not necessarily, uh, it's more of, that's an, that's a, like a secondary issue or a external issue of the real issue, which is the heart problem of the people. So as they, as the temple has been uh, reestablished, it's, it's up and running. It's been going for a while now. They, they're, they're going through all of the motions, but their heart simply isn't right before God. They are not worshiping in the way they're supposed to worship. Malachi is a, a book that the way it's sort of laid out, it's not just a, um, a proclamation from a prophet to the people. Uh, it's done in sort of a, a Q and A response where God's providing not only the question or the statement with a question, he also provides how the people will respond. So, so if you were to go through Malachi and read and highlight sort of thus says the Lord and then find and the people said, if you kind of highlight those in two different colors, it'll help you sort of flow, follow the flow of thought. Uh, Malachi, there are six oracles, six statements um, dealing with issues that God wants to contend with. Uh, the first is one that we'll look at today. We'll look at two each week is the the heart of this whole book is that God loves Israel. And, and, And this truth should change everything, how they worship, how they live, how they go about their lives. But the problem is, is that the people were apathetic to God's love and they were not following his instructions. They weren't doing what he had asked them to do. And we see that God's heart is broken in many respects, um, to how they were responding to his love. Um, if we follow Malachi out, we see that there's, there's this uh, sort of declaration of love followed by a section of rebuke and calling out the people for their sins and their apathy, starting with the priest and then going to the people. And then it sort of concludes with hope, where there's this, in the beginning of chapter 3 and in the very last verse of chapter 4, There's sort of this declaration that the Messiah is coming, that his forerunner is coming, speaking of looking in hindsight that John the Baptist would come, declare the way of the Lord, great hope, great expectation, a call for the people to fear fear the Lord and to respond to him. When Malachi stops his writing, God goes silent total silence and and historically or in historically church age church history this is referred to the silent 400 years so from bc 400 bc to the birth of christ or his announcement god is silent and the old testament really picks up um it's it's in luke we see that zachariah is in the temple doing his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holiest of holies. And there the angel Gabriel comes and announces to him that he's going to have a son. He laughs because of his, his, their, basically their infertility and their age. And he says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And so John the Baptist wanders onto the pages of the New Testament, but the reality is he's an Old Testament prophet proclaiming that the Messiah is on his way. And all of this is great, great fulfillment from Malachi, which is, is powerful. And so with that sort of introduction, we're going to get into Malachi. We're going to cover a decent amount of... <clears throat> Scripture. I'm going to try not to get bogged down in the details um, to, to give the overview. Um, so in verse 1, we read, The oracle of the word of the Lord. Some translations could say that the oracle is a burden. It could be translated burden. It's this heaviness of a statement. We see that it begins with the word of the Lord. He has this burden that he wants to convey to the people. You see the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. The recipients are the nation of, or not, or the people of Israel. There is no nation at this point. To Israel through Malachi, 
that Malachi is the prophet who's delivering it. The Malachi is a word that is very uncommon for a name, which creates some speculation. Was there truly a, a prophet Malachi? Or uh, Everybody believes that Malachi is an individual, uh, but the question is, is, was Malachi his real name? And the reason that the question is, is Malachi means my messenger. And so uh, we know nothing about this prophet we, other than what's written here. And he doesn't speak about himself. And I think it highlights the point that Malachi is like, this isn't about me. This is about God. And this is God's message to us as a people of Israel. And verses two through five, we get into the first oracle. And I tell you, when I opened Malachi for the first time, just to sit through and read, I, I couldn't get through these four words without my heart just stopping. We don't need to raise our hand, but when people start talking about the Bible, specifically between the Old Testament and New Testament, there are so many who speak of the Old Testament that, that God's like this hate monger who's just mean and doesn't like the people. And, and if you, the people who say that, they just clearly haven't read through the Old Testament to see the nature of God. And these words should grip us. I have loved you. That this is the opening statement of Malachi. And I believe that this, these four words, I believe, are the whole heart and thrust of this whole book. God says, I have loved you. It makes me think back to Peter 5.7 that we just covered. Cast your anxiety on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. That throughout the Bible, God continually tries to make the point and highlight and remind us that the creator and sustainer of the universe cares for you, that he loves you. He starts with this statement. And look how the people respond. But you say, how have you loved us? This is just a a slap in God's face. The God who gives you life, breath, everything, your existence. He declares, I love you. And he responds, how have you loved us? I came across one commentator and he says this, uh, Israel was like an insensitive wife who was oblivious to the frustration and unhappiness of her husband. If you asked Israel about her relationship with the Lord, she would have answered, everything's good. But if you asked her mate, the Lord, he would have said, it's lousy. My wife is oblivious to my love. I could drop out of sight and Israel wouldn't miss me. God's evaluation of the marriage was correct one, of course. And so here, it's just heart-wrenching. It makes me think of, you know, the, the, this morning, the thought that came in that God through the prophets, one poor prophet who I'm blank, Amos, I think, was it Amos, Homer? No, Gomer, Gomer and Amos, Hosea. I told you I'm bad with names. And his name's not the thing that sticks out to me about that story. Hosea is not the prophet I'd want to be. You see, his whole life and ministry was to be an example to the people of Israel to demonstrate how the people were treating God. And so to do that, what God did is he made him marry a prostitute and stay married to a prostitute that while they entered into this covenantal relationship, she was out having relationships with other men while married to this prophet. And it's heartbroken. And God says, Thanks, buddy. I need you. This is, this, is your, this is your calling in life to be married to this woman in order to demonstrate what Israel is doing to me. And so here we see sort of this. We see this. I have loved you, says the Lord. And you respond, how have you loved us? And so he gives us this illustration between Jacob and Esau. We could spend some time here. But I don't want to get lost. It's, uh, we, we need to remove the idea before I re- read this. Don't have um, emotions sort of in your thought. When he says, oh, I've loved one and hated the other, we think, well, how could God do that? And I think the idea here is more in, in covenant. 
And the point, the overarching point that God is making in the next few verses, what he's telling to Israel is, how can you ask me the question, how have I loved you? You you were never a great people. You were never anything special. The, the, the reason you are who you are is because I chose you. And, and And we get all wrapped up around the axle about being chosen. How can God choose? Well, he chooses all through the script. He said he chooses us. I, I'm not God. But the idea in the choosing is we have to take ourselves to the school ground as little kids when teams are being picked and place yourself as a kid that never gets picked for the team. That nobody wants the kid, the last one standing, after all of the kids have been picked, there's always sort of one that's kind of like, and it, you know, then the last, the, the person picking is like, you know what, I want to be gracious, you guys can just have that one. And I think when God has this picture of, of choosing, what he does is we're all that one. And he chooses us first. And so he's making the point to Israel, listen, there's Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the second born. He wasn't entitled to any of the privileges, any of the blessing. But the reason he was is simply because I chose him and it circumvented the whole issue. And so how can you sit here and ask me the question, how have I loved you when all of history demonstrates my love for you? It doesn't have to do, I don't think, with the emotional hatred to Esau and his descendants. What God is showing is this covenantal relationship that he has established with Israel to remind them of his great and profound love for him. We have the same thing in the New Testament. If you're a believer, we're told that before the foundation of the world, God knew who you were. To think that if you're in Christ, that God has made this relationship with you. And, and if you have a relationship with God, it's, it's not because you're a great person. Ephesians tells us that you were darkness before coming to Christ. It's because of his nature, his love, his desire. And I do believe this is an invitation that extends to all people. And so he goes on to say to make the point of demonstrating his love. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, we will return and build up the ruins. Thus the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, so God says that, that Edom, no matter what they do, they can, they can say, oh, we got struck down. We'll just build up and we'll make it prosperous. And then God, they, they start building up and God's just going to wipe it out again. Because it doesn't matter what they are going to do. My hand is not upon them. My, my hand is upon you. And then you're going to see this and you're going to respond over this historical period. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Somehow in this, Israel will see that God is so much bigger than they thought. And this is a theme through Malachi. The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. When we start looking and seeing and I believe we're going to get to it today. Um, we will at the end of chapter one. We start seeing the Lord's name and his greatness and his majesty and his magnitude. God wants the people to understand how awesome and mighty and wonderful he is. And this first oracle, these, what is it, four verses... I believe should be read kind of before every oracle that we see that this is the heart of it, that God is awesome. He loves you. How does his love cause you to respond? And this is the problem. Verses six, chapter one, verse six, all the way to where we're going to stop today is chapter two, verse nine. Basically, the priests are going to be um, called out in the second oracle. The, the worship had become sort of sloppy seconds to God. They no longer were worshiping in the way that God had commanded them to do. It was, they were offering their, their scraps. 
And so God starts with the priest or what we today would refer to as the pastors, the leaders of the church. Their heart had grown so stale and so apathetic towards God that they didn't really care how things were done. And they, in essence, became sort of that wife who, although she's in this covenantal relationship, her eye is wandering, her heart's wandering, and she doesn't really care about her husband, and the husband's heart is breaking. And in this case, the husband is God, and the spouse is Israel and the priest and how they're leading everything. Look at verse 6, how, it's, how he begins the second oracle. A son honors his father and his servant and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. God asked a question. A son honors, respects his dad. A master respects, I mean, a servant respects the master. And if I'm your father, and if I'm your master, where's, where's my respect? You're the priest over the nation of Israel. You're the ones running the temple. Where, where is your fear of me? Where is your respect for me? Where, where is it? But you say, how have we despised your name? You're overreacting, God. You're taking this stuff way too seriously. And in this whole, this whole section, there's a lot of more, I've had more questions. I've had more thoughts. And I hope that as we go through Malachi to leave you with things to sort of chew on and to ponder, to sort of ask yourself and to question. But clearly in this section, clearly in all of Malachi, God cares how we worship. He cares about our hearts. He cares about our response to him. He has a standard. He wants us to respond with passion, with zeal, with love to the love that he's poured out. They weren't doing it. We no longer have a temple worship. We don't, we're not sacrificing animals. But certainly there are principles for we who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. Certainly there are similar expectations. And Romans 12 1 says that, that, that I urge you by the mercies of God that you offer your, your bodies as this living sacrifice. So there is this expectation that God has done so much for us that we should respond to that. Not that we're trying to earn our salvation, but we're responding to this great love. And so you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7. The response is, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? The instructions are very clear. When you come to me, when you make a sacrifice, what I've asked of you is that you give your first offerings, that you give the best when you sacrifice an animal, that there's no blemish, there's no sickness, there's no ailment in the animal. You are taking your very finest and you're laying that before the Lord. But what they were doing is they were taking their lame animals, their sick animals, and the worship that they were performing in the temple was stuff that God didn't ask of them, what he didn't want from them. One of the things coming to the Valley Baptist Church, this is really the, the first church I've gone to where there's been a building. And so normally I've always like gone to church where it's like a school or, you know, like you're not there during the week. And so one thing I've noticed at a church where there's a, where there's property, when you leave and you can come back and like, it's always a church building. I can't tell you how many times over the years I'll like show up at the front door and there'll be like three trash bags of junk, total garbage. And there'll be a little note like, you know, God bless you. And it's like, God bless you. 
Like, so I got to take your stuff to the dump because you don't want to pay the 35 bucks to like, to have it just like, it happens all the time. I've, I'm sorry if it's any of you. I don't like, it's not, but, but you see, it's like, oh, well, this is junk. We're going to do spring cleaning instead of like, just getting rid of it. I'll, I'll donate it or I'll make it my offering. And this is, they're offering animals that, they, that would be useless to them, that they should have slaughtered. It's, it's, and they're not doing anything about it. The priests are, are, are fine with this, it seems. There's a lot of speculation over why they allowed this. One speculation is that the people had grown so apathetic. The, the priests are sort of in their vocation uh, f- for them to challenge the people for worshiping sort of inappropriately would sort of put their vocation on the line. Like they, their sustenance came through people's giving. And so to challenge kind of put their livelihood at risk is one. And so what had happened is instead of them being the sort of the, the leaders, the messengers proclaiming how worship was to happen, sort of the people were sort of dictating and it was getting way out of control. God says you give the lame and the sick, the latter part of verse 8, then he asked the question, would why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive it kindly, says the Lord of hosts? So when, so, so when the IRS comes and says you owe your taxes at the end of the year and you are like, oh, Uncle Sam wants some, uh, you know, $1,000 to pay my taxes. Let me go through the closets and load up all my like garage sale stuff and go down with my old Levi's and go put it down to the tax man's office. How do you think that would go? Any of us, any of us, courageous enough to give that a shot just for a sermon illustration? He says, "How would the governor respond if you took a blind animal, a lame animal, a sick animal, and you went to like offer?" He says, "There's no way you would do that. It would be foolish of your part." And God's making the point, I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. I'm the one who's loved you. And this is how you're responding to me. You're responding to me, you're responding to me in a way that you would not even respond to the authorities over you. Verse 9, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. And so as this is going on, God says, I wish there were just one. If there were one priest among you, that would go out to the temple and slam the gate shut and lock it and say, this is absolutely unacceptable. This is disrespectful to God. It's, th- this worship is only going to get us in trouble and we need to cut it out. And God's saying there's not one priest amongst any of you who are willing to stand up and to do the right thing. Man, it's like his goosebumps. Like, like, like as one who is a pastor, as one who is in this sort of place of responsibility. Another commentator sort of took this illustration to modern times and, and said, well, it's the same way. You know, people don't like, they're not used to having, you know, they're not used to reading is kind of what he said. So let's, let's make a sort of theatrical elements in worship and let's reduce the message and let's turn it into a big show. And I don't want to get into a sort of a right and wrong way, but the highlight is is that because people weren't really willing to like worship, that that that, that they're sort of giving, they're compromising on God's standard in order to like get the crowd. And so this week, I just keep, or the last few weeks, just kind of like, what does proper worship look like? How? how how do we not get off track? Because clearly God would rather the worship just stop altogether. 
doing it halfway, going through the religious motions. It's not just about being here just on Sunday, like, oh, I checked the box. Like, I, I, that was my life for many years. I just got to go to church. If I go to church, I check the box. But see, God in his worship, what he wants is, I have loved you. I have loved you. That this is, this is God, the, the, the all-powerful that back at the creation of the world, he was the one who spoke it into existence. The scripture tells us that you have, that he holds all things together, that if you have life today, it's because of him. And how he loved us should have, it shouldn't be like, oh, high five, God, I'm good. I'm, here's, here's my, my, I mean, my, my 25 cent gift, I, like this book isn't just about tithing, but this, but, but I see how tithing is important. It was a, in my own life, that transition understanding, like, no, God has done so much for me. Suddenly everything I have is his, how I manage this. I'm just sort of like an employee managing somebody else's stuff. And I'm going to be accountable and suddenly when my when i was convicted like no i'm i believe i'm supposed to tithe that i'm supposed to contribute that that any wage that i've given that i want to use this to give to god to honor god to help contribute with the work and this is what's going on here they're throwing god a penny like it's a hat on the corner and it wasn't sort of this this heart of worship and it was coming from the priests. Like the, 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 the people in this section, they're doing it. We see their offerings. But the people who are being corrected are the priests, the leaders who are encouraging this and allowing this to happen. And then from verses 11 to 14, we're going to see many uh, things like great among the nations, feared among the nations. God's going back to how great and how awesome he is. Verse 11, for from the rising sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you are profaning it, saying that the table of the Lord is defiled as and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. And you also say, my, how tiresome is it? How boring is worshiping God? You disdain it. This is sort of the ap- apathy that they just, who cares that God loves? This is, why do we have to do it this way? Verse 13, you say, my, how tiresome it is. You, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring it. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. You guys get that? that oh, here's this guy. He has this great animal, this free of, of blemish and stain, and he vows this is the Lord's animal. I'm going to make an offering with this to him. But then he realizes he had another one that's got some sort of blemish and problem that's useless to him. And he ends up taking that one and sacrificing that one. And so verses 1 through 9 of Malachi chapter 2 verse 9. Uh, it's been said that this is... Um, this is an Old Testament treatment of 1 Timothy 4.16 that says, uh, calling out the pastors, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, coupled with James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So God sort of identifies the problem. Now he's going to sort of get to the prescription of how this is to be fixed. 
He says, this is the commandment for you, O priests. Verse 2 of chapter 2. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. This is sort of beautiful. Like if you're not listening to him, if you're not hearing what he says and then taking it to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces. And that's exactly what it says. The refuse of your feasts and you'll be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you that my command that my covenant may continue with Levi says the Lord of hosts says if you're going to keep going this way consequences are going to come woe to you who are leaders of God you're going to allow this to happen you're going to you're you're going to ignore you're supposed to be the teachers of Israel the leaders of the people to help them in their worship of me. And, and they're responding the way they're responding because they're just mimicking you. And if you're going to continue down this path, this severe consequence is coming your way. And I'm going to give you this consequence so that I can continue my covenant with Levi. Now you can go back to, Je- I think, Genesis, Levi, the, the, the priestly line. And there's 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 some question is he is he is he talking about levi specifically as the individual or is he is he dealing with the the whole the the levitical priestly line the covenant that he made with the priest it's probably i think it's a little bit of both he says in verse five my covenant with him was one of life and peace And I gave to him as an object of reference. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. So when God talks about the purpose of the priestly line, why he'd established these guys that they would walk uprightly with peace, that, that as they taught people, that people would turn from their sinful ways and get right with God. God from Genesis to Revelation has been this God of, of love and reconciliation and trying to enter into um, a covenantal relationship with, with humanity who continually turns their back on God. I don't understand, like one, one person, I, I think it was J. Vernon McGee in his commentary on this, dealing with the Jacob and Esau, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He's like, yeah, there was a student that came up to me really having a hard time with the whole that God hated. And he's like, man, I looked at the student, I said, I have a really hard time with this whole passage too. But my hard time is how could God love any of us? Like he kind of was a reality, like how, how, how is God so patient? I know last week we, the, you guys talked about the, the loving kindness, the chesed of, of God, this, this, this long-suffering gentleness with humanity. I don't get it. God is far more patient than any of us are with our fellow humans. And then in verse 7, there's sort of... Uh, to, to me, this is the heart of the purpose of the, the priest. I have it highlighted and starred as a pastor of this church. This is sort of what, like, this, this to me is God's rebuking, but this is what he wants to see. For the lips of a priest, how he speaks, how he preaches, should preserve knowledge. See, the whole purpose of a priest that we're going to see that he's a messenger in the same passage. Uh, My role as a pastor is not to give my opinion. It's to preserve the knowledge of the scriptures, to proclaim this knowledge. 
They were supposed to be teaching the word of God. And men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. It's not about the priest. It's about God and his word. And they've been placed in this position like Malachi, my messenger, to convey the truth that has been revealed. And this is a, for someone who teaches the scriptures, who's involved in people's lives, this can be a very difficult thing if you fall in the trap of wanting to please people and wanting uh, not to step on anybody's toes or to hurt their feelings. When the text is taught from the scripture, it's not about what I feel. Although I might have feelings, I might I try to convey like what I've experienced. Like, but my heart ultimately is to teach the word of God faithfully to God, that I would honor what He says, not to be afraid to say things when it says stuff that man it goes against my wisdom. Which the the, the, the issue with that is I have like very little wisdom. But so this is the whole what he wants to, to take time that you're teaching the word accurately, that people are coming to hear and listening, which I love that book. And uh, the, the last book that we did for the new members class, the one that we're kind of sticking with is what is a healthy church member? There's a whole sort of chapter on like like the responsibility of the church member is that you would have expository ears, that you don't just come and click the box that you're at church, but that you're engaged with the text and is the pastor in line. I'm human. I make mistakes or sometimes I don't see stuff that, that when you're listening to a sermon, it's so easy to kind of like get another angle. It's like, Ooh, and people will say stuff. Gunner, do you think about that? I'm like, no, that's a great idea. Where were you two days ago? Like when I had been preparing, And then he says in verse eight, but as for you, you've turned aside from the way you've caused many to stumble. What a terrible thing for a priest pastor, the one who's been charged with the role of leading people to God. And God then tells them, you've turned aside. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction, by your teaching. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Man, I... My prayer is that that I never get that uh, admonition from God. So I've also made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So that's the the, the second oracle. Next week, where it's going is it's going to, it's going to turn to the individual. It's going to look at the individual people and how, their lack of responding to God's love is manifesting itself in how they treat one another, their marriages. And it's going to get really uncomfortable. And then as we turn the page into chapter 3, which we're going to do next week, the, the fourth oracle, there's going to be this, this looking at our hope in God, this promise of the coming messenger that John the Baptist is going to come to make the way for the Lord. He doesn't say John the Baptist, but when we go to the New Testament, we can see that that's where this prophecy was fulfilled. And everything's after our rebuke comes from the Lord. He turns our attention to the hope that we have in him, that what he wants from us is to repent, to bow down before him, to fear him, to walk with him, to respond to his love. And it truly, ultimately, is a beautiful picture. That the whole thrust is the way, the way I see it, all goes back to those very first four words that God announces. For I have loved you. And I'd encourage you this week, just as we... Because the thing that's just going around in my mind, I'm sorry I don't have the answer, and I don't know what it looks like for you, but to grapple with the whole God loves you. God, we, we know from the New Testament that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, that Christ on the cross bore the punishment that was supposed to come to each of us. And he took it in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. And this is a message we talk about like every single week. 
that God loves you, that Jesus died for you? And have you built up a sort of an inoculation to Jesus? This is my greatest fear for children within the church. Is that when I look at adults who are raised in the church, see, I wasn't, I don't have that. But when I see of the many that walk away bitter and angry at God and just don't care, they've heard the message about Jesus. They heard, they just don't, they just don't care. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. This is exactly what happened. These children within Malachi had turned their back on God and God standing there saying, I love you. I love you. And the response, how, how have you loved us? And so I'd encourage us this week to, 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 to ponder what is coming to church? What is worshiping God? Like, what's your heart like in this? Are you here today because somebody dragged you to come to church? Are you here um, because you want to worship? Not being here last week, this is maybe my getting sick last week was more preparing for this week. But I, I, I think I can use the word hate. I try not. I always get scolded if I use that word in my house. But I really hate missing church. Like I, as as a Christian, desire to to be here from the from the hanging out with everybody. That's worship. That that fellowship. How are you doing? How's life going? How how can we help you? To, to the singing of songs is not just about song, but that's this is worship to God. And and then going through the scriptures, uh, for me going through this, I can study all week, but there's something different about being here collectively with one another and hearing God's word. When I don't have this, when I'm not here, my heart longs for it. And when I look at this picture of Malachi, God cares about what we are doing here today. And so I'd encourage us to think through just worship and so, Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this great, encouraging word of Malachi. We thank you for the hope that we see of the coming Messiah, of John the Baptist and his forerunner to the Messiah's coming. And, Father, we thank you also for the rebuke found within this book. Father, we pray that um, you would help us, Lord, to... Lord, to get a healthy picture of of your love for us, Lord, that we would respond appropriately, that our time of worshiping one another would not be a, a pain, that we would be here excited, eager to commune with you, to commune with other believers. Father, we pray that our hearts would be right, and if they're wrong, Lord, we ask that you would help us in this area. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness towards us. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.